Mud Stories, Episode 33. Your mercy floods my tired soul as you lift me out of my muddy hole. You wash me up with your sweet grace and you lead me to a safer place again. That first year is really hard. I was just tormented. I fear. And I remember him saying, you need to make a decision. Are you going to live the rest of your life like this? Or are you going to live the rest of your life? Because this isn't living. This is being boxed up in some kind of prison of your own imagination. I think it was really tough love. You have a life to live and a son to take care of, and you can't curl up in this ball and be an emotional mess all the time. You, you have to step out in faith. Either you believe it or you don't believe it. Either God's in charge or he's not. Hi, my name is Jackie Watkins, your host, and you're listening to Mud Stories, a podcast dedicated to bringing you inspiration in your muddiest moments, hope to make it through your mud, and encouragement for you to know that you are not alone. Hey friends, welcome back to the Mud Stories podcast. And if it's your first time joining us today, I want to extend to you a big, huge welcome. I'm so very glad you're here. Today, I'm bringing you part one of a two-part conversation I enjoyed with the amazing Elizabeth Foss. Now, Elizabeth has quite a story. She's walked through quite a bit of mud. And first and foremost, she is the wife to her husband, Mike, and also a mom of nine children, ages 6 to 26, and she resides with her family in Northern Virginia. Now, Elizabeth wears lots of hats. She's a homeschooler, a knitter. Recently, she's become a runner. She's been a writer for over 20 years, um, primarily writing a family life column in her local area. She's also the author of two books, and she blogs regularly about all things at the heart of her home, which is the title of her blog. And she's had some excitement in her life this past year where she found herself with a new title. She welcomed her first granddaughter, Lucy Sean, into the family. And Lucy is almost a year old. And if you go to the show notes, you will see the lovely picture of Elizabeth holding Lucy in that picture. And she's just darling. Elizabeth has been through some mud, and from her early years as a child of an alcoholic mother to her own cancer diagnosis at age 24, unexpected C-sections, high-risk pregnancies, fear, burnout, and even depression. And it's been out of her personal mud that she has really curated and created a really special six-week workshop online, which just began February 18th of 2015, which was just last week, if you're listening in real time. And that workshop is entitled The Restore Workshop, and it's geared towards adult women who have struggled or are struggling with or want to avoid burnout. And I'll be sharing more about the Restore Workshop that that Elizabeth has created at the end of the podcast today. So I want to make sure that you stick around and hear all that Elizabeth has happening over there at the Restore Workshop. I think you're really going to like all the things that are involved with it. I know I joined this past week and I've just really been loving it so very much. And so I can't wait to share that with you. So hang out and stick with me after our part one of our conversation with Elizabeth and you can hear all about it. So for this part one of my conversation with Elizabeth, we discuss a bit about her family, some issues about parenting that we've both struggled with, her cancer diagnosis at age 24, and the hard journey through chemo and radiation. Elizabeth shares about complications of pregnancy, C-sections, preemies, and being predisposed to depression, how crisis can solidify a marriage, and her come-to-Jesus turning point. We talk about our mutual love for Amy Grant, back to the days when a Walkman was popular, 
And we also reminisce about how the power of music can really minister and heal us no matter what we're going through. Through Elizabeth's story, together we explore our need to relinquish control in the midst of hard things, our need to surrender again and again and again, how control is an illusion, and the process of facing fear during and after suffering. It's my hope and prayer that you will be blessed by this part one of my conversation with Elizabeth Foss. Enjoy. Hi, Elizabeth. Welcome to the Mud Stories podcast. Hi, Jackie. I'm so glad to get to talk to you today. Well, I feel so thankful that you're here with me because I've spent much time reading your words. And I just, I feel like it's such an honor to talk to you. And I think for several reasons, I feel that way. To me, it's just so apparent that you love God with your whole heart and his love really is contagious through you and your writing. Aww. It really is. And, and you're so transparent and real and relatable. And I've just loved reading your words the last few days. And I've also learned you're a woman who's continually learning to slow down and oh, yeah. seize yeah. life's moments because you realize how precious life really is. And really, it's such an honor to have you here. Thank you for saying yes to share with oh, us. Oh, well, thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. I feel like I'm in great company. So <laughs> I'm looking forward to this. Well, before we talk about some mud, because this is the Mud Stories podcast, we talk about mud. Would you take a moment and tell us more about yourself, your family, your children, where you're from and what you do? Okay. <laughs> I know that's a big question, but <laughs> all of that. <laughs> I really want to hear about each of your kids and their ages and just, you know, where you live and what you find your days doing. Oh, we could be here doing that all night. <laughs> Okay, so I am married to my best friend from high school. I really can't, in good conscience, call her my high school sweetheart because it was <laughs> a most definitely rocky relationship, you know, kind of through those early years. And we got married right after college. Actually, he hadn't even finished yet, but we got married. I was 21 when we got married. Um, and we had a baby the next year. That's Michael. Um, and so we got married 27 years ago. So Michael's 26. Um, and when Michael was 18 months old, I was diagnosed with cancer Mm. and, um, prescribed both chemotherapy and radiation and told that chances were good that we would not have any more children. But I had a really wonderful, wonderful oncologist who really understood how much we wanted to have more children. And um, he kind of played with some things and it was kind of experimental. But anyway, um, we have had eight children since then. Um, so, um, so we really defied those odds nicely. <laughs> yes. So how old are they? Well, I finished chemotherapy in December, late December of 1990, and I went in for a six-month checkup, and I asked my oncologist when I could, if I could get pregnant, and he said, you know, if you are able to get pregnant, I think you'll carry to term, and I feel confident that you'll live to raise that baby. You know, he felt really mm. good about recovery. And he said, but I think it's going to be super hard for you to get pregnant. So you need to be prepared for that. Mm-hmm. And I kind of winked and smiled. And I called him two weeks later and said, I'm pregnant. And, <laughs> two weeks. And so two awesome. weeks. I knew I, when I asked the question, I knew it was a real and viable possibility yes. like that day. And um, so... Christian was born in May of 1992, so he's almost 23, and then um, every two years. So Patrick is 20, and so we had three little boys, and then we got our girl, and so Mary Beth is 18. Um, So Michael is married, and um, he and his wife Kristen have a baby, 
So I have a grandbaby. So you're a grandma. I am, which still can't wrap my brain around, and she's almost a year old. <laughs> oh, I love it. So that's Lucy. And then um, Christian is uh, at James Madison University, and Patrick is at University of Virginia. So all three of them are out of the house now. So I have six at home. Mary Beth's 18. Okay. Steven's 16. Nick is 14. Katie's 12. Um, and then Caroline is eight and Sarah is six. Oh, so six. my youngest is six and my oldest is 26. I love that so yeah. much. It's pretty cool. It's really, it is know, so cool. Recently, Lucy's getting to where she's, you know, she's not walking yet, but she's upright and going from furniture to furniture and Sarah's all of a sudden really able to engage with her and it's so fun to realize that my last baby is playing with my first baby's first baby kind of thing and it's kind of a really sweet thing so beautiful Yeah, my youngest is seven and a girl, so I get that age. My oldest is 19, um, and he is on his own, and um, my spread isn't quite as vast as yours, but... but it's um, still a pretty good spread. I can relate in in being in that world of parenting yeah. an adult child and right. parenting little ones, and it really is quite a feat, isn't it? <laughs> yes, and it's so... Uh, the big ones take so much <sighs> emotional energy. Talking and, and oh wrestling goodness. through such deep topics, don't you think? Big, big. And, big and then topics. the little ones, you think, gosh, why was this hard when everybody was... <laughs> And, and people remind me that part of the reason is that you you spend those years when your first ones are little, mm-hmm. gaining the wisdom and experience, you know, that, yeah. that we're not all born with And it. perspective, don't you and think? It, yeah. Oh, yeah. absolutely. Definitely. And, and I think I parent differently because of that perspective. Mm-hmm. You know, I see things that, you know, I think, oh, maybe I should have done a little more of this or a little less that, mm-hmm. or maybe that's really not all that important. I mean, the big joke is that when Patrick, who is 20 now, when he was two, he, um, he cut his hand and he needed surgery. And on the way home from, um, it was like an outpatient surgical place. I mean, it's pretty extensive surgery, but it was still an outpatient surgery. And we stopped at Dunkin' Donuts. He had no, absolutely no idea what a donut was at two. Like, what are these things that they're giving me? You know, he hadn't eaten all night and we'd done the surgery and Patty just had no idea what a donut was. And Sarah like lives on sugar. <laughs> like in my house, how did this happen? How did this happen? This slow drip drip of the big kids bringing stuff in. A slow fade. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I can so relate to that. And I think with my oldest, you know, I wanted everything to be just just so, you know, he was uh-huh. born when I was 24 and I was, you know, very idealistic and right. wanted right. everything just so. I wanted everything clean and orderly and neat and, you know, really strove hard to either do it myself or force him to in a sort of more militant way. And I think that has certainly faded now that I'm over 40, you know, <laughs> I'm just more relaxed for sure. I think one of the things you know, when you talk about doing it yourself, too, I think when those little, when those, my first kids were little, I, I think I just felt like I needed to prove to the whole world I could do it. Mm-hmm. And I didn't ask for help. And I, right. you know, thought everything had to be a certain way that really didn't. And I was so worried about what people thought. And I, yeah, you know, it's just all of that where now I'm just like, y'all, uh, we've done this. And... <laughs> This is us. Like, take it or leave it, right? (laughs) Yeah, you know, (laughs) you can have your opinions, but these are my kids and this is who we are. This is who we are. Yeah. And we're learning all along the way for sure. And I think, I think not doing for the, my littler ones, helping them gain more responsibility and, Mm -hmm. you know, just taking pride and effort in them being more independent and me having less control. I think it's going to be better. Um, because I, I saw a lot of things through my older son's teenage years and his young adult life even now where he's just not quite as independent as I'd maybe prefer <laughs> him to be. And I think it's not a fault of his own. It's because I was swooping in so often trying right. to fix everything. And yet there is a gift 
that we give when we allow them to really wrestle through their own decisions and the consequences mm-hmm. of those decisions and let those be the teachers rather than our lecturing in a sense. Absolutely. So I anyway. totally agree. Yeah. Well, I love hearing about your family. Beautiful. Well, you have walked and maybe even sometimes crawled through some pretty muddy places. And I know you mentioned you didn't always have nine kids. In fact, when you mm-hmm. were 24, you had one. And that significant mud of cancer appeared. Mm-hmm. Will you take us back and share with us a little more about what you faced in those early days of diagnosis and then even in the suffering of treatment and then the aftermath of that, how cancer changed your paradigm, how it was a turning point for you in a sense? I think um, Michael was born um a year after we got married and I was 22 when he was born. And I remember in early, early postpartum, um, reaching up and kind of feeling, um, it's a, it was a super clavicular node. So it sat like right on my collarbone and feeling this kind of bump thing that concerned me. And Mm -hmm. I said something to my OB when I went in, um, for the postpartum check and they kind of attributed it to breastfeeding. It was kind of a wait and see thing. And long story short, it went undiagnosed for 18 months. Was it a lymph node? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep, it was. Um, so 18 months later, um, I learned that that was a sentinel node, that that it, it, it was a malignant node, but the big tumor was actually in my chest. So I had Hodgkin's disease. Okay. And, um, and it was a stage two Hodgkin's meaning that was at two sites. Um, is that how it commonly appears in young people? It's a swollen lymph node. Very classic presentation of Mm -hmm. Hodgkin's disease is a supraclavicular node. Mm -hmm. And that's usually a, a sign that there's a, 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 in your chest, a primary site. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and so the protocol at the time was for about six months of chemotherapy and 20 radiation followed by 20 radiation treatments. And, um, we are so young. I mean, I look back now cause I have children who are that age now and I think, oh my gosh, we did those doctor's appointments by ourselves, you know, the two of us, and we walked through that whole thing. And um, I, Were you in Virginia then we, as well? We were in Virginia, and okay. we were literally located. We were a mile from, um, from my mother and about three or four miles from his parents. And okay. um, his parents, um, he, was, he was born you know, when his parents were in their late thirties, early forties. So his parents were older and his father had just retired, which was such a huge blessing. Um, so he was, he was really our, just such an enormous help, enormous, enormous help. I can't imagine how he could have lived those, those months without him in practical ways. I mean, he came over and did a lot of the, the childcare and the, Mm -hmm. just being there and, um, and we only had one car, so, um, and Mike was kind of underemployed at the time, which is actually another really, really big blessing. I mean, we were struggling financially tremendously, but, um, but he had so much flexibility in his work that he was at every single chemotherapy treatment. He came to all of them. Mm. He did all, all of chemotherapy, um, and he works in, at the time he was working in um, sports television, primarily with college sports. Mm-hmm. Um, and basketball was his busy season. And I was diagnosed at Easter time. So it was April, which was another blessing because the summer is kind of dead. And so he was able to be a lot more available. By the time we made it through the chemo cycles, um, we were getting into November and early December and Mike's dad drove me to every radiation treatment every day. He would take me and I would go in and he would play with Michael in the car or in the wherever. And mm-hmm. then I would come back out. So, um, so we had that, that kind of support, but, um, we learned really early in our marriage to lean heavily on each other. Mm-hmm. 
And, um, and you know, that whole, you say in sickness and in health and when you're 21, you know, <laughs> yes. you're thinking, yeah, if he gets the flu, I'll bring him soup right. kind of thing, right. you know, and you no just have idea. no idea mm-hmm. that this, you know, tiny bride that's going to be standing in front of me is going to be bald and, you know, blown up on prednisone. And mm. you just have no idea how... It was is a brutal chemotherapy regimen. There are lots mm. and lots of side effects. Um, you know, the nausea yeah. and the vomiting, and um, so did they give we, you a port? Yeah. And that was a weird, weird thing. I don't know anybody else who's had that chemo regimen who didn't have a port, and I didn't have a port, wow. which meant I was getting stuck every time. It got mm-hmm. harder and harder to get a vein. It got more and more traumatic to get a vein because, you know, my veins were getting blown up right and left all over the place. Yeah, because it's really toxic, isn't it? It was terrible. And um, yeah, I was three cycles in and um, hospitalized because I had absolutely no white blood cells and a raging infection Mm. and they put in a port but when they do it when you're febrile um it's not a permanent port right so that port came out when I left the hospital and then they were like well we're almost through so we're not going to do another port we'll Mm. just kind of get through to the end so I I never really understood the whole port decision yeah so that's hard that's, yeah, that see, made it even more traumatic. Yeah, and, and that hospital, that hospitalization was a, probably the turning point in my life in a, from a faith perspective, because I was so, I was sick, and um, and I was scared. I mean, at that, you know, at by that time, I had lost all my hair, and I was um, mm. feeling really, really vulnerable. My yeah. body just wasn't my own body. I had a huge scar across my chest where they had biopsied. I was nursing when I was diagnosed. So they went in to biopsy the mediastinal node, which never even needed to be done. They could have biopsied the, the one on my collarbone and it, it would have been fine. But for some reason they went in hmm. and, you know, took out pieces of rib and went for that one. And um, so even just healing so from that was traumatic. Huge, well, it was really hard to heal. I mean, I have a really terrible scar because my breasts were just incredibly engorged because I had had to wean abruptly Mm -hmm. and I've been nursing an 18 month old. So it was, it was really, really hard. So my body was pretty beat up by the time I was, um, I was hospitalized that August. It was Mm -hmm. the second week of August. And, um, I woke up in the middle of the night, just drenched in sweat. And I knew that we had to go immediately. That was like one of the things that they had warned us most about. And they, it was a really like everything, it it was a bad experience. Like there were a lot of things that, that were terrible. I was in a room, the curtain was drawn. I never saw this woman's face. She was on the window side of the room. I was on the door side. Mm. She had just been told that after having a bone marrow transplant that it had failed and that she was going to die of breast cancer. Um, <sighs> and I was in the, they, they just, uh, I look back and I think, <sighs> Oh my gosh, if I could have just been not such a cowering, timid, people pleasing person and insisted on some things, I could have probably spared myself a lot of grief, but um, they never thought, you know, mm-hmm. about this person sitting next to her at, when they were telling her she's dying, this total stranger who also had cancer. Yeah. So, How scary. So, um, and she was fairly young. She had, she had young children. She, she had a daughter who was about to go into high school and, or a son who was about to go into high school and a daughter who was about to go into middle school. And, um, I heard her tell them, um, tell her kids, I heard her, you know, tell countless people on the phone. Hmm. Um, we, I was there for a week and it, it was just, just listening to it was gut wrenching. And when they had asked me what I wanted to do about support, um, mm-hmm. did I want to do a support group? I said, no, because I know me and I know that I am, um, I'm super sensitive. I absorb everybody's everything. And I knew that if I were in a support group, I would just, I would just feel everybody's pain. Mm-hmm. And I felt like I had enough of my own pain and I didn't want to do that. But there was a program at the time that I think is defunct now and uh, they would take people and they would try to match them with somebody who had experienced what they had experienced. So same type of cancer, kind of same demographic. Right. And I was 
really specific. And I said, I want to be paired with someone who did this and got pregnant afterwards. And um, they found me this wonderful, wonderful woman who was uh, probably six, eight years older than I was, but who was just two years in recovery. And um, she had adopted right after they finished treatment and then found herself pregnant. So she was pregnant. She was also um, a very devout Christian. And Mm. so when I was in the hospital, she called. She said, can I bring you anything? I said, I can't listen to this a minute longer. Just I, I don't know what. But there was something about the fever that made it so that I really couldn't watch TV. Like I couldn't look at the screen kind of thing. Yeah. So she walked in with a Walkman. Remember that? Yes, I do. I had one with the cassette for sure. She walked mm-hmm. in with a Walkman and she had um, recorded everything Amy Grant had ever sung. Mm. And so she handed me cassette tapes and she said, just keep playing these. And um, you talk about the power of music. Wow. To I, that was my companion. That was, you know, those were in the days I couldn't, you couldn't just, you know, flip your iPhone, no. get whatever you wanted. No. You were at the mercy of whatever was on that tape. That's right. And that was it. I can remember taking cassette tapes and recording, um, albums or Christian, um, radio too, and trying huh? to have my mixes on my tapes so that I'd have the right. songs with me. It's like, oh, quick, that one's coming on. Record, go. You know? And, and so, that was, it was a yeah. really cumbersome process, you know? Yeah, and, it was. Um, and that's what I had. I had Amy Grant on a cassette Amy tape Grant. And, uh, and changed my life. I, I mean, love her. Because, you know, there were certain lyrics that even to this day, yeah. I, I hear the song and I'm in the place again. Mm. And... Um, and the power of music to take us back mm-hmm. to where we were and what we felt right. and how we were living at the time. Absolutely. Exactly. Absolutely. And, uh, we made it through that week. And that was that was as bad as it ever got, it, you know, but it was a week of total surrender. You know, I just said, God, I made all my plans, you know, and yeah. I had I grew up in an alcoholic family and I had. I think grown up, I know I grew up thinking as soon as I get out of here, my life is going to be so much better because Mm -hmm. I'm going to be in control. You know, when you're the child of an alcoholic, you have so little control. You have this horrible sense of being at the mercy of just utter chaos. Mm -hmm. Whatever the mood strikes. um, Whatever the mood. And you never know from one Mm -hmm. day to the next what you're going to face when you wake up or who's going to wake you up in the middle of the night or whatever. But I knew that as soon as I could get out of there and I would be in control, everything would be fine, you know? And so then I married the man of my dreams and we had this beautiful baby and then we had cancer and I was like, Oh wait, Mm. I'm not in control. I'm still not in control. This was not how the plan was supposed to go. (laughs) Not my plan. And, and that there's that song she sings, you know, I made some mighty plans and I Mm. held them in my hands Mm -hmm. and, you know, it's like, yeah, I did that, didn't I? And, and that was kind of my, my come to Jesus moment where I was just like, you know what? I, I, I can't, I'm not, as much as I'm the planner, as much as I thought this was how it was going to work, you know, mm-hmm. I'm not. And and you're in charge and I surrender. And um, so hard to do. So, so hard. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's not like it's something you do one time. Mm-hmm. You do it over and over and over yeah. again. And you get reminded over and over and over mm-hmm. again. You know, it, it happens with your kids, you know, as they grow and you think, oh, you know, I, I had this baby and I was in charge. I, I called all the shots and wait, now he's a person. And oh my goodness, I can't believe he just said that to me. Right. Right. All of a sudden, you know, you're, you're, he's walking around your heart outside your body Mm -hmm. and doing stuff and you're not in control. Yeah. And all you can do is pray. Mm -hmm. So, so with Amy Grant and a new mentor, how did those days look as you were recovering, as your hair grew back and has you, you know, you were still parenting a child, you had a marriage and. Absolutely. You know, I, and I remember, um, I remember saying to Lynn, my mentor, once I get over this, I'm never going to be afraid of anything. Mm-hmm. Like I've just faced like my worst fear mm-hmm. and I won't be afraid of anything. And she said, no, you'll always be afraid of this. 
And I, it just, it had never, it was probably October of that year when we had this conversation. It never occurred to me that like I wouldn't be just done. And, um, well, because you were thinking, okay, I lost control for a little while, but maybe there's a, a slight chance I'm going to get the driver's wheel back. You yeah, know, and I thought, and I just, I guess I naively thought, you know, you, if you make it through chemo and you're still alive, then you're done. Yeah. And, um, and then I remember my oncologist saying to me, because I wanted to cut something short and mm -hmm. he was like, you know, we're going to do the whole thing because the only thing worse than a cancer diagnosis is the diagnosis of a recurrence. And mm -hmm. I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> this isn't going to happen again. You know, there can't be any chance of that. And so that was kind of the beginning of the inkling that there would be fear mm -hmm. and, um, and that fear wasn't going to go away on December 29th when I finished my last radiation treatment, that it was going to be with me forever. And so I, and I remember kind of Mike and I having a real meeting of the minds and it seemed like it had been a lot longer, but I know it wasn't because it was, it was my birthday, which was January 10th. So we were two weeks out from treatment and, um, I was utterly terrified and it, they tell you that the year after cancer is sometimes harder emotionally than the cancer year because you're fighting all the post-traumatic stuff mm -hmm. and you're fighting the fear and you're waiting to see, is this, you know, is it going to come back? Did, did we beat it? Yeah. You know, that first year is really hard. And I, it felt like it was a lot longer into that first year, but it, it was only a couple of weeks and I was just tormented by fear. And I remember him saying, you need to make a decision. Are you going to live the rest of your life like this? Or are you going to live the rest of your life? Because this isn't living. This is being boxed up in some kind of prison yeah. of your own imagination. Because mm -hmm. really, there is nothing that says that this is going to come back and get you right now. Right now, we have a clean bill of health. You've been so thoroughly checked. And they mm -hmm. said, it's all good. And he was really, at the time, I remember thinking, you are so mean, you know, <laughs> do you not understand oh. how hard this is and what I've been through? But I think it was really tough love. Mm -hmm. You know, it was, a uh, you have a life to live and a son to take care of, and you can't curl up in this ball and be an emotional mess mm -hmm. all the time. You, you have to step out in faith. Either you believe it or you don't believe it. Either God's in charge or he's not and you're in charge. Mm -hmm. And if you're in charge, you can worry all you want. But if God's in charge, then what are you worried about? Because worry is just the antithesis of prayer. Mm. And so I, I want to say, oh, and that was it. You know, I made my conscious decision to trust God and we were all good 25 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and the reality is, you know, I have to make the decision every day every and day. there are lots of things that scare me and I live with that fear a lot and it, it, it's, it's always there. You, you know, I can't read a cancer story without putting myself in it. Mm. Um, and I worry about my kids. Um, and you know, am I going to be here, especially my littler ones, because I think, you know, I want to be able to see this all the way through. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I worry about late effects because I was kind of on the cutting edge of Hodgkin's treatment. Prior to that, mm -hmm. um, prior to that time, probably about 10 years or so prior to that time, almost everyone died. So there isn't a lot of long-term, okay, so this is what happens to survivors because... Yeah, I'm, there wasn't a lot of data for them to go yeah. by. Yeah. I'm out in front of it. And so, so you're kind of not knowing my friend Lynn, um, did have breast cancer three years ago. Um, mm. and it really knocked me for a loop because our treatment was very similar, but it was very different in a lot of ways that are important. To so did whole. her cancer recur? No, she had breast cancer. So, okay. um, it, she, she had Hodgkin's disease the first time, but with Hodgkin's disease, with mantle radiation, um, there is, now we know, um, the mm -hmm. risk of breast cancer. I see. Um, 
And there are things that mitigate that. Uh, she hadn't had children before and I had, and I had nursed. So there's a difference mm. between mature breast tissue. Right. And, it, and, and they, they think it's a pretty significant difference because what they have found is in women over 30 who have Hodgkin's disease, there's no, um, greater occurrence of breast cancer in those survivors than in the general population. Okay. But in women under 30, there's a much greater occurrence. Mm. And so the theory is, well, it's a mature breast cancer, a mm -hmm. mature breast tissue thing. But I was clearly under 30, but I had had a full-term pregnancy and I had nursed. And you had nursed, yeah. Yeah. So, so there was that. Um, and there were other things about her treatment that were a little bit different than mine. So, yeah. you know, we'll never know. Um, but it was, I, I remember, you know, getting the email from her husband and just, shaking uncontrollably, yeah. you know, because she's always been just a few years out before I was. Mm -hmm. And as long as Lynn was okay, I was okay kind of thing. Yeah. So there's some other late effects that, that, you know, we need to watch. And I, I do, that do concern me. I tend to be on the side of, of avoiding the doctor. Um, <laughs> I just really don't like to go to yeah. probably to a detriment. Yeah. Um, and, um, well, it yeah, was traumatic so Been okay. Yeah. yeah, it was, it was really traumatic. And, and, and there were a lot of things, you know, I was misdiagnosed for 18 months. So yeah. there's a whole trust issue, right? Too. You know, I, I'm very skeptical when they tell me anything and, yeah. and that was kind of underscored, um, when I was pregnant with Sarah, um, I had placenta previa mm. and, um, and for those people who don't know what that is, you, yeah. you want to tell them or you want me to tell them? Go ahead. You, you go. Okay. You so placenta <laughs> previa is just where the placenta is covering part of the opening of the cervix so the baby can't really pass through without the placenta coming out first. And we know that if the placenta comes out first, the baby can't survive. So we have to uh, do a C-section for that. And you're at high risk for bleeding. Yes. High lots risk for lots. bleeding. And, and many patients are hospitalized for, for many weeks. Yes, they are. <laughs> we just had a patient who was, who I had taken care of on and off for the past few months. She was hospitalized for three months for a complete previa, yep. which just meant the placenta completely covered the cervical os. And she had a PIC line, which is a central line. Um, so we didn't have to keep changing her IV sites. But yeah, it's very serious. Very, very serious. serious. So with Sarah... Well, who's um, your youngest, right? Who's my youngest? Okay, well, yes. So I had, um, I had six completely unmedicated deliveries, and then uh, my seventh baby was a footling breach, so oh. she was uh, an urgent C-section. Okay, so you had had a C-section. Um, Placenta right. previa is more common in people who have a scar. Right, exactly. Yep. So that's kind of where I was going with yes, that. Yes, I could so, tell. <laughs> so Sarah, so Katie was a footling breach, and we did a C-section. Caroline was four years later, and she was a VBAC. Awesome. And and it was great. And then Sarah was placenta previa. Yeah. And, um, and I, I started bleeding. I'm trying to think now. I'm trying to do the math, which, you know. So she was born at 34 weeks. I started bleeding at 28 weeks. Mm. And that meant total bed rest. Yep. So we went and did complete bed rest at 28 weeks. And, um, and that is a lot harder than people think it's to just sit there and do nothing. <laughs> ridiculous. Very hard. It's yeah. And it, you know, it was also logistically very difficult. Because, I can't imagine, you know, this was my ninth baby at the time I had, um, everybody was home, but Michael, Michael was in college. Mm -hmm. So um, I had a full house. They had full activities. You know, all these kids were school age. They were doing things, yep. going places. And Mike was traveling. Well, and you homeschool. And you yeah, homeschool. Um, and they and still actually, need to eat. <laughs> yeah. The, the homeschooling part was the easiest part of it because they just could bring everything in and sit on my bed. Right. The eating part was ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, you know, because imagine that your kids just have control over your kitchen. And you <laughs> don't even see it for weeks on end. That's lots ridiculous. of scrambled eggs and pancakes. Although your it kids probably great. know how to cook. <laughs> my kids do. Patrick, you know, kind of took that was his thing. And he, he, we were kind of on a food network binge. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I love it. Yeah. Um, but so what happened was 
Oh, gosh. So she was. So you were on bed rest in the hospital yeah. or at home? So, at both. Both. In the hospital and then at home. And then um, at 33 weeks, they did an MRI and said, oh, you know what? It's, it doesn't look like a preview. It looks like it's moved enough that you'll probably be good to go. Um, but let's just take it easy. And, and they wanted one more visit with the, with the perinatologist mm-hmm. before they would let me get off of bed rest. And about three days later, I started bleeding profusely, <sighs> like blood everywhere. everywhere. Yeah. So that was So you delivered? Weeks. Yep. And um, so she she was born at 34 weeks and we only did eight days in the NICU, which is pretty, that's amazing. Yeah. Um, that's really good. Yeah. But here comes the fear again. I can just imagine. Right. So, you know, there was the whole, the whole, the doctors were wrong kind of thing. Mm. And I almost died because the doctors were wrong. Mm -hmm. And my baby's almost, my baby almost died. And, um, that whole just complete mistrust of, of where it is. And the odd thing is the whole time I was pregnant and on bed rest, I kept thinking, uh, you know, they tell you, they were very honest with me, you know, this, this could end very badly. Mm -hmm. You know, we could end up having to do a hysterectomy to control the bleeding. We could, there are places where people lose limbs. Um, and there are people who die. Mm -hmm. This can happen and the baby can die. And, um, I remember, saying to my friend Danielle, we were actually writing a book at the time, which is a really great thing to do on bed rest. They're <laughs> <laughs> like, oh my gosh, how did you get a book written? I'm like, I didn't do anything else. I didn't do laundry. I didn't cook meals. That was your book about, was that your book about virtues? About um, yeah, gratitude? and yeah, organized around the virtues. So it's a yeah. book of daily devotion mm. that are organized around the, of the virtues. But I remember saying to Danielle, um, you know, I, I'm going through all these quotes and the book is, it has lots of quotes from holy people. And, you know, they all have this, they're, nobody's afraid of dying. They all have this grace about them. And mm. she was like, well, maybe you, maybe. And I said, I don't feel that. I, I just don't feel like I could just say, okay, come get me. I'm ready, God. And she said, well, maybe you get that grace when you need that grace. And maybe by not having that grace, you know, you don't necessarily need it right now. And I remember <laughs> being in the delivery room and being ridiculously calm. I just was, I had all the grace I needed. I was so, it's like, okay, you want to deliver now? We're going to deliver now. And, and it, mm. all of it just was, it went, the surgery went like clockwork. Everything was perfect. That's good. Um, they delivered her. I remember seeing her. I remember, and it, my midwives were amazing, you know, because it was very apparent early in this pregnancy that it wasn't going to be a midwife delivery. Right. And so they acted as my advocate the whole way through. And my midwife, Mike was on one side and my midwife was on the other side of my head during surgery. Oh, that's neat. And the, the, the surgeon had actually invited her to, to, to assist. The, yeah. Mm-hmm. But, but she said, no, you know, yeah. I just, I'm going to be down here. It's hard when you're so connected um, to a patient. I've learned that yeah. over the course I, of... Well, with my first C-section, she did assist. And um, actually, I was kind of glad when she said no, because I don't think she did the greatest stitching job at the end. <laughs> <laughs> I think I got a much better you're stitching hilarious. job. You're hilarious. <laughs> but, um, but anyway, she sat, she was uh, with me, and I remember her oh. saying, um, the placenta is out, and it is complete, mm-hmm. and there is no accreta. Because yeah. that had been the huge fear. Right. Because the fear is that placenta will grow into the muscle of the uterus and then it will not come out unless you take the uterus out. Right. And yeah. she said, placenta's out mm. and it's complete. And I must have passed out. Such a relief. Anything <laughs> after that at all until we were in recovery and calling the kids. But, yeah. um, but I did, you know, there was this sense of, wow, he just carried me through that. And, mm-hmm. and I were here and I have this baby and um, no postpartum depression that time at all. I mean, I just rode on just knowing that I had been so protected and so cared, carried and so loved. And um, after my first C-section, I had very, very, very long bout with postpartum depression. Mm. Um, and 
That's so it hard. Was like night and day. It was terrible. And, That's so and hard. I, and it went undiagnosed completely again. <laughs> I just tend to get fly under the radar. Yeah. Well, you you're know. probably pretty strong, you know, inside. I mean, you're a cancer survivor. You've yeah. had a lot of medical treatment and you manage a household, you know, on your right. own with your husband gone a lot. And so I'm sure you just barrel through things thinking, well, this is just hard. That's all. Yeah, Where, whereas that's what I thought, I yeah. just thought, you know, this is just hard. I'm living through this, um, this hard thing. And I, I had never had a C-section. So even though I was a really experienced, um, postpartum mom, you mm-hmm. know, that was my seventh baby. Yeah. Um, that was all new. It's a different me. recovery. And, I, and it terrified me, you know, the, a lot of it, I was really scared and, um, and it was a different recovery and I was exhausted and I was tandem nursing, mm-hmm. um, which I think I was just completely depleted yeah. at that at that point. Um, yeah. So it was definitely, and I have a, I am definitely predisposed to depression. So I was a sitting duck at that yeah. point. Um, but I learned a lot about depression that time. When you say you're predisposed, would you say it's personality wise that you're predisposed or experience through life? has with the fear, you know, because I'm, I'm, I'm thinking the the fear wasn't something that you could just conquer way back when you, you know, had some deepening of your faith after chemo and walking in mentorship with Lynn and then with the gift of subsequent children and the beauty of that, it doesn't extinguish the fear. It's something you learn to handle day by day, I would think. Right. And I think that's true. I think that every time you see how faithful he is, it it gives you more to conquer the fear with. You know, like, I do think, I mean, I'd like to believe that as I look back over the faithfulness of God through my entire life, that I can call upon that as a reserve when the fear hits. I think for me, depression, um, I think a lot of it was rooted in, in a really traumatic childhood. Mm. Um, and then you look at the chicken and the egg thing, you know, um, my mother was an active alcoholic, but my father really struggled with depression Mm. and he and I have talked about it recently. Was there the genetic predisposition there to, and how much of it's learned and how much of it is a product of the environment that I grew up in. Um, and some of it certainly is, you know, I, I grew up thinking that I had to earn love Hmm. and that I had to be good enough and that nothing I did ever was good enough Mm -hmm. because of the capriciousness of the environment. Right. It just was that uncertainty. Absolutely. All the time. Uncertainty, you know, is a, is a, great way to teach a kid, you know, nothing you do is ever gonna, doesn't matter what you do because it's all at somebody else's whim. So there was that. And then, but I also think, I do think that some people are wired to be more prone to depression. Mm -hmm. Um, and I really see that I I have a child that struggles hard. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, I look at the way that child was raised and I think, okay, well there is nothing but unconditional love and support and all the things that I've learned in all those years have been poured into that child. And still this is the cross that they bear. And so I think there's a little bit, it's both the nature and the nurture kind of thing. You know, I think, I think it's really important for me, for my father and for the third generation to understand what our triggers are and they're different. Mm -hmm. You know, I know I know for me what will trigger. It'll be, um, you know, fatigue. If I get tired, it's it's a real bad thing. So I know I need to stay well rested because then I start to slide. Um, yeah. And and fear, you know. So we can't avoid cancer all our lives. There are stories of cancer around us every time, all the time. Um, and I have to know that for me, that's it's different. Well, especially when people we know become diagnosed with it, too. You Mm -hmm. know, walking next to a friend who has cancer is so hard, too. And I know you've had people who are close to you who have struggled and faced that. So last year, uh, my son called 
July of 2013. And um, he said, he said, Sean has um, a tumor. Actually, he said tumors in his chest. Sean is, was Michael's best friend. And mm. I right away jump into my, oh, it's all going to be just fine. That's classic Hodgkin's, you know, presentation. And Sean's healthy, otherwise healthy. He was um, a very serious soccer player. This type occurs in young people. Hodgkin's, he fits the profile. He's mm-hmm. in exactly the right age. You know, this is Hodgkin's mm-hmm. disease. Mm-hmm. And I talked to Sean and talked to his mom. And the biopsy came back and it wasn't Hodgkin's disease at all. It mm. was an extremely rare form of thymic cancer. And um, mm. we watched him go from being just the most alive person you've ever met. He was an athlete, right? Yeah, he was a very serious athlete. He played soccer professionally. Mm. Um, he was a standout soccer player in college. Um, and he was a soccer coach at the time of his diagnosis. So he was diagnosed in July mm. and he fought it with everything he had, but it was a fight he was never going to win. There was no chance from the very beginning. Um, and it was a horrific death. Is that because of the type of cancer that there wasn't a chance? <sighs> yeah, it, mm. it that it was the type of cancer, um, you know, it was basically uncurable. He did some, he agreed to do some experimental things. Um, and this time last year he was, you know, in the hospital, just dying a absolutely gruesome, gruesome mm-hmm. death. And he, uh, he died in early March. So from July to March, and then it was done. And it was awful. Um, and you know, at the time of, uh, Sean's diagnosis, Michael was 24 and Michael had always feared 24 because mm-hmm. he grew up knowing that 24 was when mommy got cancer. Right. And so for him, he really walked through some of his own fears and he saw things that he'll never forget. Mm-hmm. But Sean all the way through, he just, one of Sean's greatest quotes was um god has a plan live or die i win and Mm. he believed that and he lived that and he taught us all more in that time than you know a lifetime could have taught because he i've never witnessed such strength of faith and you watch him knowing that he's your son's friend and you can't help but put yourself in the mother's position. Mm. And I just remember thinking to myself through the whole thing, this is our calling is to prepare our children for whatever mm-hmm. comes. And God forbid this comes, I would want my kids to know God the way Sean knows God. And we all learned so much that year. Um, Sean's birthday was yesterday. Hmm. So uh, he's very much on my mind this weekend. And it's still really hard to talk about Sean without crying. So Sean died and, um, and then Michael's baby was born the next month. Lucy was born the next uh, month. mm -hmm. She was born about a month after he died Mm. and they named her Lucy Sean. And she's, she's just, you know, what for everybody, she was the gift, but there was so much bittersweet in mm. that, you know, the last couple of months of Kristen's pregnancy, you know, she was huge at the funeral and Michael was so distracted and we were all waiting for this baby and the baby was late and, and now she really is. She's just it was funny, two weeks ago, they retired his jersey number and put him in the Hall of Fame at American University where he had played soccer. And it was Lucy's first basketball game. <coughs> Excuse me. And uh, she was so happy there. <laughs> and, I mean, she was just so social and happy and bouncing all over the place. And, uh, and Michael just started to say, he's like, wow, this is your happy. And then he just kind of stopped. And he was like, yeah, this would be your happy place because this was Sean's place, you know, and it's just she is she is the joy and the gift and the real intangible sign that God is so faithful. 
and we sure hope that Lucy knows God the way Sean knew God, mm-hmm. you know, that that's how she lives out being his namesake. Um, yeah. but yeah, it was, it was definitely, uh, a come face to face. You can't dodge this one. Cause I did have it. I do have a tendency, you know, I hear about somebody who has cancer and that you write them a note, but I stay far away because I know that I, you know, I told you I didn't want to do a support right. group because I get right. everybody's story. Right. And then cancer keeps crossing your path. Yeah. And this oh. one, there is just no avoiding this because I would never have let Michael walk it alone. Yeah. Um, and because it was clearly God's will that we all share in his suffering, but also share in the joy that he is. And the witness that he was, even in his suffering, yeah, absolutely. to all of you, you know, to the world, really. Yeah, really. Oh, yes, absolutely. Because I think I came across a lot of the Instagrams that you were sharing, and so it was so inspiring, and I didn't even really fully understand the story, but... And he was really, really... Sean loved the spotlight. He loved to be in the limelight, and, um, and he was quite the master of Instagram, like... <laughs> on Instagram became a thing and so he did start using social media and then when he because he had kind of played at a high level and he knew a lot of people he he did definitely draw attention and when he realized what was happening he used that to bring glory to God Mm. I mean that was what he was about he became very much aware that this was his way to tell people about Jesus and how he was getting the strength to do the hard things he was doing. So there was an article in the Washington Post that was um, incredibly well done and didn't at all shy away from the whole faith angle. Um, and then uh, my son works at USA Today. He's, he works, he's, I don't remember what his title is, but anyway, he works for, <laughs> for the win. Something good. Anyway, <laughs> there are first things that came out of that. So anyway, the morning that Sean died, he um, he called me after he got the call, and uh, I mm-hmm. said, "What can I do?" And he said, "I just emailed you a column. I just need you to um, to proofread it, edit for me." So I went downstairs mm-hmm. and I sat in a chair where I always sit for my quiet time, and I have my computer and. I could barely see it because I was struggling so hard not to just sob Mm. Um, and sent it back to him and it went live and it went viral. So, Mm. and it was not your typical sports story. It was Sean knew God and that's why Sean was here. And it was in a lot of places that were very mainstream places. Um, You know, it just got a lot of attention that was very mainstream and Sean's story got out. And, and it's amazing to me even now, and I'm sure two weeks from now when we celebrate, you know, the first anniversary of his death, it'll happen again Mm -hmm. to some degree, you know, that, that sports was the vehicle, um, and that social media was the vehicle. They, both things, you know, those boys use them to tell a story of incredible grace and strength and faith. And Mm. so, yeah. So out of the mud, (laughs) out of the mud, we will rise. And it was funny for sure. And, um, you know, and, and he does, he does rise. So. Well, that concludes part one of my two part conversation with Elizabeth Foss. And I really, really hope that you can make time to join us next week As I know, there is just so much more that we discuss, including helping our kids through suffering, wrestling through perfectionism ourselves, how it is to balance social media in our lives in this day and age, and wrestling through the hard things of depression and even burnout. And as I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, it's really been out of her personal mud of being burned out again and again that Elizabeth has curated and really created a six-week workshop entitled The Restore Workshop. And it's an online course geared toward adult women who have struggled, are struggling, or want to avoid burnout. 
So I want to tell you some more details about the Restore Workshop. Right up front, I will tell you it is not free. It costs $65, but I think from my experience being in it already and paying for it myself, I think you'll really find that it's worth it. And you need to know I get no commission for referring you to this workshop. I just honestly love what Elizabeth is doing. And I really wanted to pass it along to you and share it because it's just such a beautiful thing. So if you're wondering, is this Restore Workshop for me? Well, if you're feeling weary, frayed around the edges, falling apart at the seams, maybe you go to bed exhausted, wake up tired, or it seems like you have too much to do, through this workshop, Elizabeth's goal is to restore our hearts to a place of rest and peace. So practically what the workshop looks like, it's set up for different things on different days. So every Monday, she releases a podcast with a guest who shares her own perspective on burnout. And a couple of her guests include Ann Voskamp, Ann Bogle, and some others that just have some wisdom and insight into this issue of feeling burned out in our everyday days. And they each bring their own unique perspective and offer something new to the conversation. So that's on Mondays. And then on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays, Elizabeth brings certain components into sharper focus. Most of them are themes of self-care. So like getting adequate sleep, finding healthy boundaries, and even things like getting in a daily walk or, you know, enjoying the outdoors. There's just something about being outside that gives us a fresh perspective and like a reset. And then each Friday, Elizabeth leaves some space for us to use our hands. Now, I'm not a super crafty person, and I have to tell you, it's been, there's been one Friday in the workshop already, and it has actually been something that I think I can do. And so Elizabeth's great at providing tutorials for these simple crafts or recipes. Um, Many of them include nourishing soups, pretty guest towels, making hand kitchen towels or um, herbal bath salts. I think she has one Friday where they're making efficient headbands for morning runs and just things our hands can do that are simple that make life a little more beautiful. And she includes really thorough instructions. She has an easier version and a harder version. So whatever level you're at, I think you will love it. And then woven through every day throughout the entire six weeks is that encouragement for our quiet time alone with Jesus, facilitated by some reflective devotions that she provides, quotes, short prayers, and doable daily action steps all within a context of a whole community that's available to interact with. And so all this she's offering for six weeks now and through Easter in this Lent season, and then she'll be keeping it up live online for four weeks after. So for a total of 10 weeks, she's running this Restore Workshop. And you'll hear more from her in part two next week. She explains some of it in her own words. But I'd just love for you to check it all out by going to nurturingjoy.com is where you can find it. And um, as usual, you can find the show notes and the links to everything we mentioned in this episode over at mudstories.com or at JackieWatkins.com forward slash episode 33. And I have links over there to the Restore Workshop, also to some frequently asked questions if you want to know more. And also in the links, I've included the Amy Grant song that Elizabeth quoted entitled So Glad. Also there, you can find the link to the foundation that was started in Sean's name and the article that her son Mike Foss wrote in memory of Sean for USA Today, in addition to some links to Elizabeth's books about homeschooling and the daily devotion book that she mentioned. So all of that's there for you if you need it. Again, mudstories.com or jackiewatkins.com forward slash episode 33. Now, really quick, don't forget, you can get a free app to this podcast. All you have to do is go to JackieWatkins.com forward slash Apple app or forward slash Android app, depending on what 
type of mobile device you have. I would love, love, love to hear any feedback you have about this podcast. And of course, if you are compelled to, you know, leave me a rating or review on iTunes, I would love that. I read each and every one and they encourage me so much. You can find that at JackieWatkins.com forward slash iTunes. And also you can still get a free audiobook if you want one today at MudStoriesBook.com. So wasn't that just awesome hearing from Elizabeth? And I tell you personally, I just was so loving the fact that I was going to get to spend time talking to her. She's just so deep and rich in wisdom. And I just look forward to meeting you here next week as we continue our conversation with Elizabeth Foss. And so today, no matter what you're facing in your life, no matter what your mud is right now, no matter where you've been, what mud you've walked through, or what mud lies ahead, may we each find, may you find, a grateful song to sing today. Have a beautiful day. I never in mother feels a press upon my mind I pull a shame that leaves me a little bit blind I cannot see beyond the blame and I never will find a way out and then I feel you next to me You lift my head to see Your strong arm reaches to me Your mercy floods my tired soul As you lift me out of my muddy hole You wash me up with your sweet grace And you lead me to a safer place again I never in you mother feels a press upon my mind A pull of shame that leaves me a little bit blind I cannot see beyond the blame And I never will find a way out And then I feel you next to me strong arm reaches to me. Your mercy floods my tired soul as you lift me out of my muddy hole. You wash me off with your sweet grace and you lead me to a safer place. You song to sing, a grateful song to sing, a grateful song.